Well, good morning. I'm so glad to see you all here today. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online as we continue in week two of our series through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. And it's really, it's not a book. It was a letter written by Peter to, to local churches. And if you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go back and check out the message online. Each week throughout this series is going to build on the previous week. And I want to make sure that we're all able uh, to take uh, this walk together as we uh, really journey in through and and dig into this really important, rich book. And as we do, one of the things we're going to be talking about a lot is our identity. And we think about identity, uh, you know, we dig in, we want, to, we want to better understand ourselves and each other. I'm curious, how many of you enjoy doing those personality profiles and strength finders and stuff like that? Sometimes when people geek out on that, uh, they really enjoy digging into the differences of extroverts versus introverts. I'm curious, who are my extroverts in the room? Yeah, they are very proud of it. Um, they'll let you know. Where are the introverts in the room? Okay, always much quieter. If you saw someone who did not raise their hand, that's an introvert. Um, that's, that's how we roll sometimes. I am an introvert, believe it or not. I'm an introvert, and I've got introvert problems. And I'm cur- I found this online. I'm curious if any of my fellow introverts can relate to this. If I was accidentally weird to you once, just know I'll be thinking about it every night for the next 20 years. <laughs> Extroverts don't understand, Right? They don't understand it. Now, I could explain to you, I could, I could recount in vivid detail all, the, all the, the moments of weirdness and social awkwardness in my life from years ago, and not only could I describe it to you, I still feel the feels from those moments. All right, when we talk about identity, we're talking about our view of self, we're, we're gonna talk about what we feel about ourselves, and, and to, really, to really get there today, I actually have a more serious question for you. Now, this more serious question is designed to really kind of help us all say, yeah, I'm ready to talk about this today. Here it is. What is an achievement that could cause you to feel better about yourself? Or what is a failure that could cause you to feel worse about yourself? You might even want to write your answer down. Take a second. Think about it. What is something that you could achieve? If you achieved it, you'd feel better about you. Or what is something that if you failed, you would feel worse about you? Even if I don't know you, and even though I don't know what you're thinking, and I can't see what's on your paper, I know what your answer is, because it's the same as mine. It's the same as everybody else's. Your answer has something to do with this, anything that affects, anything that impacts our sense of significant security and satisfaction. If your significant comes from being a great parent, the thing that's probably that you wrote down that makes you feel better about you has something to do with parenting. If your significance and security in life comes from financial achievement or career success, it's you wrote down a failure that relates to that. Today, we're gonna be talking about our identity and really we have to talk about significant security and satisfaction. And so as we begin reading through 1 Peter together, I want you to be on the lookout for things in this passage we're gonna read together that talk about significance and security and satisfaction for those who trust in Jesus. Here we go. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, can never spoil, that can never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. 
These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, your faith, which is greater than gold, and even though gold, it perishes, even though it's refined by fire, your faith, it may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving. You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, in just about every arena of life and every sphere of life, when we talk about identity and who we are, we almost always tend to think about it or talk about it in a way in which it's achieved or earned. And in some sense, that makes sense to me. Think about what is your professional identity? You earned that. And some of you might even be working towards achieving a new professional identity. If you think about the benefits and, uh, that come along and the security that comes along with whatever that professional identity is, you earned your way into that. But when we talk about who we are in Jesus, when we talk about all that we have in him, it is 0%, 0% about what we contribute or what we achieve. This is how our church is committed to talking about identity. I find joy in defining myself by what Jesus did, not what I do. And our discipleship question is, what is the story that I'm telling myself about myself? And so here's my question. Are you able to rest in that? I've got a teenage driver in my house. Um, it's one thing to trust him enough to drive. It's another thing to trust him enough for me to sleep while he's driving. So are you able to rest? Are you able to be at ease in this? And I want you to remember who wrote what we're reading. It's a guy named Peter. And the things that he wrote about, they're things that he learned the hard way. And this morning, we're going to take a quick tour through some of the low points of his life, and we're going to examine some of his wobbly devotion to Jesus. We're going to start in something you can read in John chapter 18. In the Gospels, in John chapter 18, we read about Jesus' last night of freedom. He takes his disciples to a garden. Jesus just wants to pray. Some religious leaders show up, and a bunch of soldiers show up. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? And then Jesus says, I am he. And all the soldiers fall to the ground. Now, they weren't being drama queens, like, no, he didn't. I mean, when Jesus just spoke, there's so much power in who he is, these soldiers fell to the ground. And Peter, he utilized that moment, he takes out a sword, and he swings wildly at a guy, slicing off a chunk of his ear. And why did he get violent? He had no reason to be afraid for his physical safety. Jesus had just demonstrated he had power over everything, like we just sang about. And moments of stress when we're under duress. It's just easy to trust ourselves instead of trusting Jesus. When we look at Peter's life, we can see this. It's possible to love Jesus while being unloving. Well, how do we explain that? Well, this can happen in the life of any believer when we look for significance, security, and satisfaction in something other than Jesus. Later that same night, you can read about this in Luke chapter 22. Jesus had been arrested. He's probably being beaten on by some of the guards. Peter's there in the crowd, probably hanging back a little bit, trying to just see how Jesus is doing, and somebody recognizes him. And they say, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? How many times did he deny even knowing Jesus? Three times. When stressed, when under duress, it's just easy to go back to trusting ourselves instead of trusting Jesus. What we see in Peter's life is it's possible to identify with Jesus and still at the same time deny Jesus. How do we explain that? 
Well, this could happen in the life of any believer. When we look to something other than Jesus for our significance, security, or satisfaction. Let's fast forward many years, a couple of decades. Peter is um, in a church that's multicultural. Um, and what I'm going to describe, you can read about in Galatians chapter 2. And there are uh, believers who are from a Jewish background. There are believers who are from a non-Jewish background. That word is used uh, to describe that. It's called Gentile. So you've got Gentile believers, Jewish believers. And Jewish believers are starting to put pressure on Peter so he distanced himself from the Gentile believers. He on purpose engages in racial segregation. He on purpose participates in racist discrimination in a church. When under stress, when under duress, it's just easy to trust in ourselves instead of trusting in Jesus. And what we see is it's possible to be a united people in Jesus but live like a divided people. How do we explain that? Peter is a mature follower of Jesus. He's not just that. He is a leader among the church. But this could happen in the life of any believer. When we look for significant security or satisfaction in something other than Jesus. And with his story in view, let's look at the audacious, radical, I mean sensational, true grace of God that Peter is writing to us about. He says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, not yours, but by his, until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's saying, listen, there is no, this inheritance that you have in Christ, all you have in Christ by faith, there, nothing could take it away from you, not even in your own sin. Not even the embarrassing, humiliating, public, moral mess-ups. So note takers, would you write this down? The strength of our faith is far less important than the object of our faith. The strength of our faith, far less important than the object of our faith. Right, do you know this? I mean, do you know that weak faith in something strong always beats strong faith in something weak? And our faith is important because it's important whether or not we trust Jesus, but it's not about the strength of our faith. That's not what matters. What matters is the object of our faith and his strength. We trust him. He holds on to us. Tullian is a friend of mine, uh, and he and I became friends after his life really crashed and burned. And if you aren't familiar with the name Tullian Tavijan, he is one of Billy Graham's grandsons. At one time, Tullian was a very prominent, very well-known pastor. He was a best-selling author, and he was a nationally sought-after speaker. And if he were here today, this is what he would say. He would straight up say that he blew all of that up with his own devastating moral choices. It hurt him, it hurt his family, it hurt many, many other people, and it led him to seriously contemplate suicide. And the thing that kept him from ending it all, to choosing to repent and walk the road of reconciliation can be summed up in one word. It's the gospel. And in the same way that Peter knew public moral mess-ups and he continued to point to the goodness of Jesus and all that we have in him, Tullian's doing the same thing. And in shame-defying joy, he writes this. You are not defined by your worst moments or your greatest accomplishments, your wins or your losses, your strengths or your weaknesses. God defines you and his definition for you is 
beloved. Can we have a moment of real talk this morning? Do you know who the people who have the hardest time accepting this? It's not the people who have public moral failures. In my experience, the people who have the hardest time accepting this and celebrating this, it's not the people who just got out of prison. It's not the people who are in a program trying to overcome addiction. It's not the people who attend Celebrate Recovery. The people who have the hardest time accepting and celebrating this are the ones who look like they have it all together. Because of their successes, they're viewed by others as significant because of their accomplishments, because of their public reputation, maybe even because of the way that they're seen by others in their church. With a heart full of love and gentleness this morning, can I preach the gospel to you? Let's go back to our first question. If there is any achievement that could cause you to feel better about yourself, like you have more worth and value and significance, or if there is any failure that could cause you to feel worse about yourself, as though you had less significance and value and worth, you are looking to something other than Jesus for your significance, security, and satisfaction. This is where I'm going to ask you to lean in and really listen Listen hard. It is right and good to celebrate successes. It is right and good to grieve our sins and to lament our moral mistakes and mess-ups. But it is anti-gospel. It is anti-gospel if we could connect our sense of significance to our successes or to our failures. If you are in Christ, You are defined by what he did, not by what you do. Do you know who needs to hear this today? Well, everybody. But the people who really need to hear this, if you're a follower of Jesus and you are holding back and you never talk with other people about your struggles or your sins, this is for you today. Are you going to define yourself by what you do or by what he did? Remember how we've committed to talk about identity. I find joy in defining myself by what Jesus did, not what I do. And sometimes it is embarrassment over our own mistakes that cause us to doubt that. Sometimes it's something altogether different. It might be the severity of our circumstances, how hard our circumstances are that open the door to doubt. I think Peter was writing to men and women who were experiencing both. He was writing to men and women who never knew when the next moment of abuse was going to come. They didn't know when they were going to be mistreated again next because they lived in communities that were hostile to their faith and yet they were already experiencing and learning the joy that comes in Christ, something that Peter had to learn the hard way. He said this, in all this you greatly rejoice. Though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, and gold which perishes even though refined by fire, your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I want to zero in on something that if you are in a small group, you're going to get to talk with your small group about this this week. He said this, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Well, what does that mean, we may have had to? Some people say, well, this is an indication of God obviously plans and ordains the moments of suffering in our life. 
And other people say, no, 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 that's not what that means. It means that you're in this kind of circumstance and you're going to be faithful to Jesus. It necessitates that you're going to have to face um, persecution or hardship. So which one is it? I don't know. I think God would have to make it clear what it is in each individual circumstance. Are there times that God absolutely does plan and ordain a moment of suffering? Absolutely. The cross is an example of that. The crucifixion of Jesus is an example of that. Does that mean that every time we have a moment of pain or difficulty in our life that God planned that and God caused that? I don't think so. My best understanding of Scripture, there certainly are times that God causes or ordains something to happen, and there are many times that God allows something to happen as a result of our choices. But what's most important is not why did this thing happen. What's most important for us is God's purpose for us for us in it. Would you write this down? Whatever produced our suffering isn't as important as the purpose of our suffering. Peter chose not to invest any energy or any intention, attention rather, into what caused it. Instead, he gave all of his energy and attention and, okay, what are we supposed to do in it? What's God's purpose for us in it when we experience suffering? The last week I said, I've been kind of gearing up for this series for a year. I've been praying about it, I've been studying, just kind of getting there. And, and there's a question that has come up for me in my own personal study, and I want to share it with you. But I've got to warn you, it is a hard question. It makes me flinch. Am I willing for Jesus to display his glory against the backdrop of my pain? Am I willing for Jesus to use my hurts my unjust treatment, my difficult things, even my grief-stricken circumstances, am I willing for him to use that to show off his glory? And however willing we are to wrestle with that question, however it is we might answer that question, I think it probably has a lot to say about where we're looking for significant security and satisfaction. Some of you may know before I moved here to Minnesota. I lived for seven years in Utah where I had the privilege of being a pastor and I was always in the religious minority when I lived in Utah. Um, only, uh, only about 2% of the population would be what you would call Bible-only Christians or we might use the term evangelical. Just under 2% of the state's population are evangelical Christians. And to put that in perspective, Japan has a much higher percentage um, than Utah does. India has a much higher percentage than what Utah does of evangelical Christians. So we were always in the religious minority. And our church had lots of people who had very real stories of mistreatment and what we might even call persecution because they had turned away from the religion that was most prevalent in that state in order to follow Jesus. And one night in our small groups, we asked this question. What does it cost you to follow Jesus? Has it cost you anything? Now, there's a man who quite frankly said, well, it cost me my marriage and a million dollars. For you to understand that, one of the things you need to know is in Utah, this is normal. When someone turns away from the religion that's dominant in that state to be a follower of Jesus, it's unfortunately, it's normal for the spouse to divorce them. And not only did this man did his wife walk away? His dad wrote him out of the family business because he became a follower of Jesus. And he said, it cost me my marriage. It cost me a million dollars. And yet he would say, along with Peter and countless other believers throughout history and around the world today, he would say that I have more joy in following Jesus than anything it cost me or anything I lost to follow him. 
As I've been studying and preparing, the, the scholarship of a woman named Karen Jobes has been very helpful to me. She's a biblical scholar and author, and she has a perspective that I think should buoy us. It should encourage us. She says, Christians can bear any disadvantage now because of the certainty of their eternal inheritance. It doesn't mean that hurts don't hurt, but what it means is we can face it because of the certainty of what we have in Jesus. And I'm not smart enough to explain why. I can't. But this is what I know. This is what I've seen. When we choose to stand fast in the true grace of God, even in times of adversity, it causes our faith to be more obvious, more apparent, more attractive to those who don't yet know Jesus. There is a better kingdom to live for than our own. And there's something about trusting Jesus in times of adversity that helps other people see that. And so because they were living that, Peter wrote, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Does that sound right, that we are receiving salvation? Like if I trust in Jesus, am I saved or am I not saved yet? Which is it? In order to know the answer to that, we're going to have to do a little theology 101. So my note takers, write this down. We are saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. We are saved. The theological word for this is justification. Justification. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are forgiven, and God sees us as having the same status as God the Son. We are righteous, and we are holy. That's what justification is about. We are being saved. The theological word for this is sanctification. It means the Spirit of God is in us. If we've trusted in Jesus, the Spirit of God is in us, helping our thinking, our affections, our attitudes, our behavior to grow to be in line with the status of holiness that we've received. It's about maturing. That's what sanctification is about. We will be saved. For those of you who are keeping score at home, it's going to end with another ification word. This time it's glorification. That's the theological word, glorification. And what that means is when we are face-to-face with Jesus, we will be utterly and perfectly free from sin and death. We will have new bodies, and all of creation will be perfectly restored to all that he intended it to be. That's glorification. And when you trust in Jesus, this inheritance, this great salvation is secured for you, perfectly secure, shielded by God's power, not your religious activity. Last week, I asked you to check out uh, the Bible Project. I'm curious, how many of you guys are familiar with that resource you've ever looked at? But it's great, check it out. And one of the things that I said, if we're gonna really understand this New Testament letter of 1 Peter, we gotta become happy students of the Old Testament because so much of what Peter is writing is drawn out of that. We're gonna see that right now. He says, concerning this salvation that we have, The prophets, he's talking about Old Testament prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. They searched intently and with greatest care. In the Old Testament, they're looking forward to this. When is this salvation going to come? Trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. One day a Messiah is going to come. When is it going to be? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. 
when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. I want to pay attention to this because this seems a little weird. Even angels long to look into this. What is that about? But before I do, let me say this. I think Peter's making this point. All of human history led up to the arrival and the work and the person of Jesus. And everybody in the Old Testament, they were waiting for that. And the Old Testament isn't like God's rough draft, and it's like, oh, that didn't work out so well. Let me start something new in the New Testament. That's not it. It's one unified, marvelous story. God's message has never changed. It continued and culminated in Jesus. So what's the deal with Peter saying, even angels long to look into this? I don't think that's poetic license. I don't think it's fluff. I don't think it's hyperbole. What we have in God's word is precious. The gospel is a treasure. And there's no other place to find out about it other than God's revealed word. Not even angels have another location to go and find out about it. You can only find it in God's revealed word. And when that really dawns on us, how could we ever have a casual relationship with scripture again? It's a treasure. So Peter keeps going. He says, therefore, and when you see a therefore, what are you supposed to ask? What is it therefore? Based on everything that came ahead, everything that Peter's written, now this is supposed to be our response. This is what we should do with it. With minds that are alert and fully sober. He's not saying don't drink. What he's saying is work to make sure that you are a good thinker and a clear thinker. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming as, what's this word? Obedient. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I'm holy. At the beginning of 1 Peter, we saw this last week, he said, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You get the spirit of God working in you, and the point is to be obedient to Jesus. Now, towards the end of chapter one, he's repeating himself. The point is, be obedient to Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are in him because he is holy, you are holy, be holy. Your thinking, your affections, your attitude, your behaviors, and mine too, they should all progressively continue to align and become in sync with what we have in Jesus and be more like Jesus. And this is where some people might say, I feel confused. And that's okay. That's understandable to me. Because we've already talked about how no matter what we do, we're secure in Christ. I mean, we looked at Peter's life. I told you the story of my friend Tullian, that there's no sin, there's no moral mess up that could cause us to lose our salvation. We're so secure in Christ. Even if our worst moral moments, if your worst moral moment came after your belief in Jesus, you are still secure in Christ. Is that truth in tension with the command, be holy? How can both of those things be true? You're that secure, be holy. And if anybody feels tension, I want to share with you something that I learned uh, from the late Dallas Willard. He was a brilliant Christian thinker. He was a keen philosopher. And he said this, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to earning, 
not to effort. There's nothing we could do to earn our way into the true grace of God. It is a gift. It was done by Jesus. We simply receive it by faith. But once we understand and we know, once we have the true grace of God, it is right and good for us to invest effort into understanding into being obedient, into taking our next step of growth and maturity. All throughout 1 Peter, he emphasizes our identity in Christ, so we're going to emphasize our identity in Christ, but that always and only comes in context of Jesus being our authority. It only makes sense that we, are, that we have a new identity in Christ if Christ is our authority, and this is how our church has committed to talk about that. I find joy in submitting to Jesus in his word. And our discipleship question is, who is in charge? What does it mean? What should we look like if we really do find joy in submitting to Jesus, what he says, and to his word? Peter answers that question for us. He says this, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere, what's this word? Love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Holiness always looks like love. It always looks like love. Last year, Heather and I, my wife, we were invited to lunch with a small group from our church, and uh, we didn't really know them that well. We knew a couple of people a little bit, so we thought this was gonna be a great chance to have a pleasant meal and get to know people better. Um, And that happened, but what we experienced, we didn't see coming. It was actually far better than that. This group had been together for years, for decades. And as we sat there, they went around the lunch table and they told stories of high points and low points in their life. They had truly lived life together. There was a lot of laughter. There was deep, deep affection amongst each other. There were tears shared around that table. And what became obvious is that they had lived life together and they were living this. They knew this. They experienced this. I want you to know this too. I want you to have this. I want all of us to have it. Now, we're never going to be the kind of church that tries to force something on anyone. We don't impose expectations. Everything is an invitation. And so if you are a person, you're like, I'm okay being here in the large group, but I don't know that having this kind of thing with other people in a church is possible. This is my invitation to you. Would you place yourself in an environment like a small group where you have the opportunity for this sort of thing to grow and develop? And if you are in a small group, this is my invitation to you. If you're already in one, my invitation is don't wait for this to happen by accident. Be intentional. Would you be on the lookout for opportunities to love each other deeply from the heart? And this is why. This is our serious thesis. We should let our identity drive our activity. When we trust in Jesus, we have a brand new God-given identity. This is who we are. And when we know who we are, The courage we need and the clarity we need allows us to know what to do next, how to live that out. When we know who we are, then we know what we should do. We have a God-given purpose. And this is how our church has chosen to talk about what the activity of our lives is supposed to look like as we follow Jesus. I find joy in loving others the way Jesus loved me. Jesus is the one who defines what love means. I find joy in loving others the way Jesus loved me. And our discipleship question is, what does love require of me? Next week, we're going to talk a whole lot more about what does love require of us as we turn the corner into chapter 2. 
of 1 Peter. But what I want to do today is I want to leave you with something that another apostle wrote, a guy named the Apostle Paul. And he was writing to a church that needed clarity. They needed a little juice. And quite frankly, this church was on the struggle bus when it came to loving one another. And so he wrote this to them. And I believe that this would be encouraging to us and all congregations. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, sounds pretty awesome. It says, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I can boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. We are not the first and we will not be the last. We are not the first church and we will not be the last church where we sometimes struggle with elevating religious activity over what Jesus wants most, which is loving him and loving others. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the true grace of God. Let's stand fast in it.